Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Superheroics. Have you guys ever heard of, heard of superheroes? Of course you have. Uh, did you know that there aren't really things such as superheroes as you would know them from Marvel comics? However, there is truly something in this world known as a superhero, and that's uh, a Christian. Truly... It's a Christian who's modeled and shaped and empowered by the superhero, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that sounds a little ridiculous and sort of cheesy, and that's not what this message is about anyways. But what I want to begin to build a framework of understanding for, and I don't know if I'm going to do this over multiple weeks or if this is just a one-shot thing. We'll see. I was preparing a completely different message all week, and I was telling the staff back in the back as we were praying, and somehow this message came out. I scrapped everything I was working on, and this is what came out. And I was studying the concept of supernatural. It was extremely powerful and beautiful and wonderful. There's a key question that you could bring up. You could look at the church here at Ellerslie. You could look at the church here in America. And you could say, is this all that God intended it to be? Is this it? Right here. Is this the full spectrum of the revelation of God? When it says that we, the church, reveal the manifold wisdom of God unto the heavenly realms. Is this the manifold revelation? Right here. Is this the manifold wisdom? Would the onlooking world see everything? Well, I'll just break it to you very quickly. No. Any more than you see the fullness of what a man can be in a toddler. You see, a toddler has the DNA to grow up unto a full maturity, but a toddler is not yet expressing the fullness of what is meant to grow up in him. We are a church that is in a reforming season. We have backslidden in many regards as a church, and I'm speaking in general church terms, And God is repairing. He is bringing us back to a position of strength. That just happens to be when you are alive. You see, you could look at the church in two different ways right now. It's going over a cliff, and it's heading in a completely opposite direction of the Word of God and the nature of God. That's not the church I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church that is hungry, that is passionate to know Jesus Christ, that wants what is in His Word, and wants it realized in these bodies. It wants it realized in this body. And we ache for it. We long for it. And yet, we don't just have it because we long for it. We long for it, and that begins the journey. And God says, how much do you long for it? What are you willing to do to bring it back? Anything. We want the church triumphant again. Throughout the ages, the church of Jesus Christ has been like a freight train. Nothing can stop it. You try and stamp it out. You try and persecute it. You try and threaten it with crosses, with burning at the stake, with, uh, with uh, uh, guillotines. Boy, I couldn't get that word. 
You threaten it, you threaten it, you threaten it, and what happens? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church explodes and only grows when it's persecuted. How do you stop this thing? Hint to the devil. You can't. You can't stop God's freight train. It's unstoppable, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. However, the devil doesn't want you to know that. And especially when you're a young toddler in the faith, and we are a young toddler church, we are very vulnerable and susceptible to getting off course, just like a young toddler is. If any of you are parents, you recognize this. Toddlers have enough of an understanding. They know their parent, and they know mama, daddy. They have certain things down, but there's a lot left to learn, and they are extremely vulnerable in their formative season. So are we. And so when we get to the topic that is at hand today, it is a topic that is distorted in the body of Christ today. And it's, in a sense, sort of like giving a machine gun to a toddler or giving a gas stove to a toddler, whatever that might be a better illustration, a little, less, a little more calm, but still dangerous. You see, a toddler doesn't have the wherewithal to know how to rightly handle power, to rightly handle the strength that is in the house. Well, if you're in Christ, you are in the house. You are in the kingdom. You have access to all that is in the kingdom. However, the Father, that dispenser of that great grace, knows what you're ready for and knows what you're not ready for. He wants to grow you up. When the church is the church, I don't know how many of you have studied this in the Bible, but it's, it's rather awkward and yet extraordinary. It depends on which background you come from. If you came from a hyper-charismatic background and then got fed up with it and went to super conservative, then some of the things I'm going to bring up are like very distasteful. If you've been super conservative your whole life and yet had an itch to see the fullness of the revelation of God revealed in the church and you have this desire to see strength once again manifest in the church, then you're strangely attracted to these scriptures. They're God's word. They're safe, okay? They don't do us harm by reading them. They only are going to instruct us in truth, in the way of righteousness. So don't be afraid. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. I don't know how many of you are doing that all day long. And over all the power of the enemy. Did you just hear that line? You have been given power over all the power of the enemy. You know that enemy that's been pushing you around all day long? Uh-huh. You've been given power over all the power of that enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Huh? Yeah, that's the word of God. How about this one? John 14, verily, verily, says Jesus, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Huh? What do you do with that? I, I don't know, so let's just keep reading. Let's act like we didn't hear it. And greater works than these shall he do. So not just what Jesus did, but then greater works. Uh-huh. Yeah, it said it. Because I go unto my Father. That's his reasoning. You know why you're going to do greater works? Because I'm going unto my Father. We can say, how, how in the world is that going to enable me to do any greater works? You don't know what that means to have me go to the Father, do you? What's your position? In Christ. If you're in Christ, that means you go where he goes. And where has he gone? He's gone unto the Father, the place of all power and all authority. And so the reason that you are gaining such a great strength is because you are in Christ. You have believed on Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness, and therefore, he is the way to the Father, and you have been brought near. You are seated with him in heavenly places 
in Christ. And therefore, all that the Father has, he has the power of the Holy Spirit. He has the power of grace to bequeath to those that are in Christ. And these signs shall follow them that believe. This is an awkward scripture. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Should I stop there and we can meditate for a while? <laughs> they shall take up serpents. Yeah, uh, have you ever seen those snake handling Christians? They're like handling snakes to prove Mark 16. And we're all like, yeah, is that what he's talking about? <laughs> and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That's scripture. The redeemed of the Lord. So if you're in Christ, that means you're the redeemed because redemption is found in the blood of Jesus. So if you believed on Jesus, that means you are purchased by his blood and you are now the redeemed. Well, the redeemed are a very, very special sort. They're the water walking, mountain moving, storm calling, body transporting, bread multiplying, dead raising treasure of Jehovah God. Does that sound like us? That sounds like what we could call a hyperbole, an overstatement. You see, when you were growing up and in, in Sunday school, for instance, and then they sang things like, uh, uh, march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. What, I'm in the Lord's army, that's what it was. I'm in the Lord's army, yes sir! Remember that? And what does it feel like? It feels like a hyperbole. It's like, yeah, like I'm really in an army. This is all some type of massively construed false reality that I'm buying into here. I'm some soldier, and I'm shooting artillery, and I'm flying over the enemy. <laughs> Am I? Is that what I'm doing? You see, we don't understand the reality of the spiritual battle, and as a result, it has a ring of falseness on us as we grow up. And we begin to doubt these things, and we begin to even hold it with a little bit of a cynicism. Because when we were young, we dressed in the armor of the Lord. Do you remember that? The little plastic stuff you stuck on, and you're like, I'm dressed in the armor, and your parents are all proud of you. Good boy. And they take a picture, and they send it to Grandma. They're like, look at little Eric. He's clothed in the armor. Was I clothed in the armor, or was that plastic? I think that was actually plastic. You see, to be clothed in the armor of God is a very, very real thing. And we must never turn it into some flannel board, veggie tales-ish type of thing. Many of us have grown up with David and the giant pickle. <laughs> and we've lost the sense of reality that comes with the stories of Scripture. This really happened. This is really how men and women behave on planet Earth. Is it real to you or is it plastic? That may not feel very real to you, and yet it is real. And as a result, for us, we have to begin to allow that plasticky nature of Christianity to melt away. And we have to know how to, to get a grip on the reality of what we are called to here on this earth. The allure of power. And when I say that when a young child, a toddler, gets something that only an adult is meant to utilize... Danger oftentimes ensues. If you give a, a toddler a car, for instance, and they find the key in the ignition and they turn it, technically, if they are your child, 
in your name and in your family, they have access to that car. If you died, that car would be bequeathed to them. It's their car. Have you ever even heard your kids say that? This is our car. And they show their friends, that's my car. And it is. It is their car, but it's not theirs yet to fully operate. You see, they have it, but they're not yet ready to fully operate it. We have something in the church of Jesus Christ called power. And this power is a really awkward thing for many of us to even know how to deal with. So much of the church will act like it doesn't exist. And it's called denying the power thereof. And it's a very, very bad thing. And God says, have nothing to do with such people that deny the power thereof, that is associated with the power of the gospel, with the truth of God's kingdom. There is a power. But then we have others that serve for power. What they want more than anything is power. They don't want Jesus. They want power. Then we have these reckless men in Christianity today that are going around and they have large gatherings and they are exhibiting some form of power. And it's very awkward for us on the outside looking in to go, how do I measure this? Why? Because they may heal someone, but then in their personal life, they are decrepit and they are disgusting creatures. They are self-centered. They abuse, they cheat, they are sexually immoral, and yet they have power? And so what do we say? I don't want to have anything to do with power. If that's what power is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. However, what it is is it's a corruption of something very true and real. When Jesus was here on this earth, he healed, and yet he also, in his private life, lived without sin. What is that? You see, there is something genuine and there is something distorted and we all have been dealt the hand. We've come into this generation where we have seen abuse and twisting and many of us in this room have no idea what to go after. What is it that we esteem? If you just want power and you don't want Jesus, then you're after the wrong thing. And there's stories in Acts of men just like that. They got into big trouble with God when they wanted to buy power. They wanted what the apostles had, but they didn't understand where it came from. It's a person. You give your life to a person. The natural result is that person begins to demonstrate his life in and through you. The bait away from the person of Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So if you're in a conservative church today, and you're just minding your own business, but what you notice is that every time anything gets to a supernatural statement in the Bible, a healing, a raising from the dead, a multiplying of fishes and loaves, and you just have an innocent childlike question, is that supposed to be happening in the church today? I mean, you're, you're innocent when you're asking the question. However, what do you get back? You get back a very, very complex homily. It's like, whoa. Uh, I mean, to the point where it shuts you up, and it's like, I won't ask that question again. You see, we as pastors oftentimes do a lot of hand-waving and throw some smoke up there to try and cover for the fact that we don't have that same power in our midst. And yet, it's a very, very good question for us as toddlers to begin to ask. Are we supposed to be doing that? When it says this in the scripture, am I supposed to actually think that this is true? Or am I supposed to just play dumb 
and just say, oh yeah, uh, I'm guessing God just doesn't do these things anymore. God is God. God always behaves the same way. Yes, in every generation there's a different culture, there's different people. I look different than maybe someone in another part of the globe, but guess what? God works with me the same way. He's He's a father to me the same way he's a father to them. And God, the same thing that is needed to run the church back 2,000 years ago in the book of Acts is the same stuff that is needed to run the church today. The same thing that helped Paul live his life when he says, yeah, follow me as I follow Christ. Could you imagine if all the power and all the mechanism and all the machinery needed for me to heed that statement has been left? Oh yeah, well, that, that, that's still way back in ancient Judea. You don't have that, Eric. Well, then how am I supposed to do this? Well, you just esteem scripture now. You just memorize scripture and you'll be fine. The text of scripture isn't what enables me to live out the impossible life. It's the God of all scripture imparted to me living inside of this body that enables me to live out the impossible life. And that's the same now as it was then. And God will demonstrate himself in and through his church in the exact same way today as he did then. might look different. It might sound different. Why? Because God is very creative. He heals with mud one moment, and then in the next moment, he says, yeah, be healed. What? He changes his modus operandi, but what is he doing in both cases? He's still restoring that which was lost. You see, God still always maintains agreement with his nature. We must not be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, this whole thing called Christianity is about a person. And if you get so caught up in the pursuit of power, in the pursuit of demonstration of power, in the pursuit of raising people from the dead, or the pursuit of seeing people healed divinely, you are missing what it's really about. And I've seen many men do this over the ages, and women as well. I've read many books in history of men and women who have made power their pursuit rather than Jesus Christ. Of course, while they're pursuing power, they're talking about Jesus. But I'm saying the end is not the power. The end is the person. Hudson's yearning. So let's imagine that uh, we get inside of Hudson, who's my nine-year-old, right up here in the front. If If I really am the son of Eric Ludy, he thinks, and it's true that I have the DNA for full and complete manhood, then, wouldn't this be just natural reasoning? Just think about it. I should be six foot one. I should be at least 170 pounds. I should be able to get married and have kids. I should be able to drive a car. I should be able to drive the riding lawnmower. I should be able to climb up on the roof and clear out the gutters. I should be able to get on a plane all by myself and fly around the world. I should be able to define my own schedule. I should be able to preach the sermon this upcoming Sunday. I should be able to take over Ellerslie and run it. Is he wrong? No, he's not wrong. He actually is right that in his DNA, he actually is going to grow up to be like daddy. That is a truth, and it should not be diminished. We should not hold in contempt what his thoughts are. However, there's another truth that is just as equally true, and that is he's not yet fully that. And you could say, how could he have all that and yet not have all that? You actually know the answer to that. It's called maturity. You see, God instituted a concept in his creation, and that is it's not instant maturity. Something is spawned with life. It begins a life, and it grows. 
It grows unto a maturity, a full maturity. We struggle with this in Christianity because when we turn to Jesus, we expect to be finished. And we can't accept the fact that we're not. It doesn't make sense for us, and yet it makes sense to you if I say that Hudson is not yet six foot one. And you could say, that is just not right. If he really is your son, when he's two months old, he should be six foot one. That would be awkward. (laughs) You see, we accept it in the natural, but the natural is an expression of God's nature. You ever thought about that? You see, people mess us up by calling God's creation mother nature. It's not mother nature, it's the father's nature. The creation around us is the father's nature. And God made it and he said, it's good. It's very good. And the problem with our world around us isn't God's creation. It's the fact that God has been taken out of his creation the way he's supposed to be in it. The same with your body. Your body is not the problem. It's the fact that God is not running your body anymore. And when God doesn't run your body, what happens? Something else will run it, and it's called sin. It's called the power of the flesh. And so the great rescue strategy of God is to get back to his creation, to take that which was held captive by the devil, kick the devil out, and move back in. And suddenly this body that was being used for everything terrible on earth is now being used for everything that can change the earth for the glory of God. So the yearning for growth, let's, let's stick our, ourselves in such shoes of being the, the young child in Christianity that is saying, wait a minute, if this is truly what the word of God says, then... If we really are the church of Jesus Christ, then, well, we should be greeting each other with a holy kiss, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, despising not prophecy, all coming to the service with a song, a hymn, or a spiritual song, functioning in the gifts of the Spirit, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, commanding lame people to walk, blind people to see, dead people to come forth from their graves, casting out demons, drinking poison unaffected, walking on water, commanding mountains to be thrown into the sea, multiplying fishes and loaves and bread and feeding thousands, calming winds and waves, and body transporting from here to there. Can you actually see if someone asked that question or someone said that, could you understand what they meant? Instead of getting all uncomfortable just because of your particular background in Christianity and saying, we don't talk about those things around here. You don't mention greeting each other with a holy kiss. How despicable. (laughs) You don't talk about tongues or prophecy. The Bible talks about them. Now, people on the outside have a tough time with knowing what Ellerslie is, because some of you right now are thinking, wait a minute, where is Eric going with this? Same place I always go, to Jesus. You see, we are here to reveal Jesus Christ. The Bible is safe. We don't need to be all weirded out when it talks. I agree that there are people on this earth right now that have deranged these notions to the point where most of us don't even want to touch them. As A.W. Tozier said, the greatest danger to the church is when we back into our belief system. We see a perversion of something, so we go to the opposite end. Well, the opposite end is just as bad as the perversion itself. What we need to do is knock out that which is holding hostage the truth of Jesus Christ and take it back as the church. Hey, get your grubby paws off the Holy Spirit. That's the person of God. He bears the nature of God. He doesn't bark like a dog. Hey, give him back here. Give back the idea 
of spiritual gifts within the church, the church operative in the power of the Spirit of God. What would that even look like? Many of you are afraid to even find out because you do not actually believe that there's a true, authentic version of it. All there is is a flesh, human-crazed version of it. Well, I would like to suggest that I believe that God is safe, that God does things decently in order, and he bears the same nature in everything he does. And if you recognize his nature in one area, you'll recognize it in the other. And if someone did begin to function in some of these things truly born of the Holy Spirit, your spirit would testify and say, that is the word of God. That is the nature of Jesus. That is how Jesus would behave. Normal child growth. A six-week-old child can smile. An eight-week-old child can sleep through the night. Some of you are like, that is not normal. A five to six-month-old child can begin to eat solids. A six to 12-month-old child can crawl. A 10 to 12-month-old child can toddle. A one-year-old child can talk in fragmented words. A two-year-old child can talk in partial sentences. You see, development. We're used to that because we witness it all the time in growth and development of a young child. However, we have no acceptance for that in the church of Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, there's a blockage in our understanding. We don't realize that we are like this. We are born anew. And when we're first born, it takes a while to gain the physiological strength and development to handle the grandeur of what we're called into. And so as a result, we have a tendency to rush things. We have a tendency to pressure things instead of allow God to groom us and to grow us up. Now, what I just went through was normal child development. Here's the next thing I'm going to propose. I don't think we're a normal child. I think we are a stunted child. The American church, and I know not all of you are from the American church, but you can apply this possibly straight across the board to your culture. I believe that we're not the normal healthy child that was born. I think there's something wrong with us. And as a result, our normal progression is not quite as it should be. Stunted child growth. Well, what happens or what stunts a child's growth? You could say a child born prematurely. A child born with fetal alcohol syndrome. A child shaken. A child born without certain limbs. A child born with mental retardation. A child born with cerebral palsy. A child born with Down syndrome. Each of these, we have an allowance to understand that that development is going to be a little different. There'll be a staggering. It doesn't mean just because there is difficulty or there's a stunting that the child can't properly develop. It just means that we have an allotment on the outside to say, I understand why the development is slower. I understand why they didn't walk until they were four. That's happened to many children. And it doesn't mean that they are less valuable. It just means that we understand on the outside looking in that they are facing challenges that maybe a normal child wouldn't. These children don't fit the normal child growth chart. They are equally as valuable as a child without a stunting, but it is to be understood that such children will face certain developmental delays. So here's our concept, the developmentally delayed. I'm sorry to do this to you. I'm sorry to say that we are the developmentally delayed, but I think that's probably one of the best ways of describing the American church. Have you ever noticed that in other countries, they take the simple gospel and respond to it and seem to immediately rise up and walk in a new strength, and a new power. I was just talking with a man who just came back from uh, a, a foreign country over in Asia, and he was saying, over here, I lay hands on someone to pray for them, and, you know, most of the time, nothing seems to really change. Every now and then, something does change. Over there, 
Every single time I prayed for someone, it was instant, and they were changed. How do you explain that seeming discrepancy? What is it about the American church? Why is it that we are so pathetically weak? I do have somewhat of a proposal for why, but part of it is that I would say we're developmentally delayed. If a child is born with retardation, you do not panic when at six weeks he doesn't smile. You understand that his smile may emerge a bit later. He may not be crawling at the normal time, nor walking at the expected month. His delay does not show a lack of development, but merely a slower development. A trafficked child. So for those of you that aren't familiar with child trafficking, I don't want to go into it very much. This is a safe story that I'm about to read to you. But the concept is it's a child that has been harmed, taken out of its normal environment, and oftentimes for money, sold. And it becomes a slave in a foreign culture. So a trafficked child, we're going to understand the story of Ignelda. Ignelda was six when she was sold by her uncle as a slave. From her youngest memory, she was abused, hurt, and left unprotected and vulnerable. Her body was used for others. It was beaten, cut, and harmed. Her concept of relationship with men was distorted. She feared men, hated men, and despised the idea of being close to men. To her, the idea of being close to men was revolting, for men were hateful, harmful creatures. At the age of 18, Ignelda was rescued from her enslavement. After 12 horrifying years of abuse, she was brought into a Christian ministry, and for the very first time, she was protected, cared for, honored as precious, and loved as a child of God. As an 18-year-old, Ignelda did not know how to read, did not know how to write, did not know how to relate to people, and did not know how to even be loved. She was backwards in her social skills and extremely insecure and afraid. The Christian workers understood why. Do you understand why? Do you understand why Ignelda is not actually at the level a typical 18-year-old would be at? I hope so. The Christian workers understood why. And the male Christian workers understood that they had to give space. Because she was so sensitized. Those, those Christian men loved her. They truly cared about her and wanted to help her. But they had to be very watchful of how they did. So it was mainly the female workers that could work with Ignelda. The Christian workers understood why they were patient with Ignelda when she behaved in a backward and unappreciative fashion. Ignelda didn't trust the man who ran the ministry, not because he had done anything harmful to her, but simply because he was a man. This man understood why Ignelda didn't trust him, and so he honored her by keeping a healthy distance and proving a constancy in his actions, attitudes, and words from afar. In her native country, it would be completely appropriate and normal for Ignelda to be married at the age of 18. But would you recommend that Ignelda be married? Is she ready for this? Marriage is a wonderful thing. However, when all you've experienced is abuse, when all you've experienced is a twisted version of something, do you understand that even though Ignelda has been rescued from that abuse, that she is not yet ready to be close to a man, to trust a man as a husband, to love a man? Does that mean Ignelda has no hope? Far from it. God loves Ignelda, and God only knows how to rescue, and he will save her to the uttermost. But we still need to recognize that Ignelda isn't as a normal 18-year-old would be. Marriage isn't bad. It's pure and wonderful. But for Ignelda, she is still unable to comprehend the proper nature of relating with men. 
She has only known abuse, and therefore the idea of godly manhood, love, respect, kindness, gentleness, and honor are still foreign. But with time, the Spirit of God is healing Ignelda. As she turns unto Jesus, her mind is renewed, and her perspectives are purified. It is harder for her than for other girls, but she can be wholly and completely restored. So I'm going to stop here and just lay a concept out. It's harder for the American church, but we can be wholly and completely restored. Something is messed up in our midst. And when it comes to the issue of power, most of us in here would have to admit we have not seen the healthy version of it. And so as a result, what are we doing? We're backing off as if it's repulsive. When the Holy Spirit comes up, what do we do? Whoa, hey, I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. When any of these notions come up in Scripture, we back off. There is some weird thing going on inside of us because a little child doesn't handle the Word of God that way. They don't have an issue with the Holy Spirit. They don't have a problem with the things you have a problem with. What, what's going on here? You see, you are like Ignelda. We are like Ignelda. God has a plan for her, and it's not a partial plan, but a whole plan. His plans are not lesser, but more. He is able to take what the enemy has meant for evil in Ignelda's life and turn it into a great and mighty good. It's a harder way, but it doesn't mean it's not a complete way. She can be wholly and completely restored. So, yes, I know I'm taking quite a leap here by linking us with Ignelda, but I am. We're going to call us a trafficked church. We have been bullied around by the flesh. We've been bullied around by a form of church that doesn't match with the word of God. It's all we've had. And when you're in those churches and you grow up in those churches, you don't know how to interact with it. That's the only church you know. And you love Jesus. You want Jesus. But now you find yourself curdled at a certain level towards certain behaviors. Certain things trigger you. And you find yourself backing off. And you don't even know why. You find yourself wanting to get out. If I started giving a message on speaking in tongues in here, half of you might even want to leave. And it's not because you don't like me. It's not because you don't esteem the word of God. Something about that issue. That you've been harmed with that issue. There's pain with that issue. There's a distortion. There's something that deeply grieves you. You can't put your finger on it, but it's, something's off. And all the way through your years of growing up, you are like Ignelda. It doesn't mean there isn't hope. It also doesn't mean that you're going to be speaking in tongues today. That isn't the goal. That isn't what this message is about, by the way, for those of you that are a little concerned that I'm going to go off the rails all of a sudden. A traffic church, the story of Ignelda. Many of us have only known abuses of power. Our constructs of the Holy Spirit are warped. Our notions of tongues is deranged, fleshly, artificial, and awkward. Have you ever seen those churches where they'll literally get you to say certain things to stimulate sort of this gibberish thing? And, it's like, and then they'll call it tongues? Now, those of us that are thinking humans, as we stand there and we watch, go, is that supernatural? Is that a gift from above? Something doesn't seem right about this. And then 20 years later, a whole bunch of people are all together after having this gift for 20 years, and they still say the same gibberish line. Is that tongues? And then, of course, we could have a whole debate in here. We could awaken all sorts of things. However, 
What do we sense? It's deranged, fleshly, artificial, and awkward. Something isn't right about this. Am I the only one that thinks the emperor's naked? Am I the only one to say something isn't right here, people? I'm not impressed. I am not moved towards the throne room of heaven by this. Something is awkward. The idea of hearing the voice of God is untempered and unchecked. People are saying, I heard from God, and what do they hear? Something completely contrary to Scripture. And so how many times do you need to hear that before you start to doubt that people hear from God? Can people hear from God? I don't know. I mean, all I've heard is a whole bunch of people hearing from God. And we are unable to discern between the voice of God, the voice of the flesh, and the voice of the devil. The concept of divine healing is scary and weird to some of us. While to others, it is embraced blindly without full understanding of, or restraint of Scripture. The ideas of signs and wonders have split the body of Christ, and we are the igneldas that have suffered because of it. We have those that run after the power and accept counterfeit and fleshly substitutes to the real thing, and those that deny that power was ever intended by God to even be given to the church. Yeah, there's where we have grown up. We've grown up with a split church. We have one side that doesn't seem to ever temper anything they believe with Scripture. And then you have the other side that has to ignore a good portion of Scripture to be scriptural. Where are we? We're the Ignaldas. We're struggling. This issue comes up for us, and most of us just want to back away. It's like, yeah, well, you know, God's good. Well, that doesn't answer the issue. Do you believe that God wants to move in power in and through your life? Well, I mean, sure. Yeah, yeah, maybe. We don't know. We don't have a grid. We don't have a construct of expectation that is accurate with the word of God. What does God want to do? Because what he wants to do, he will do. And if you are in agreement with that, your life will demonstrate Jesus Christ on this earth. Would you blame us if we were a little gun shy on these issues? Same way we look at Ignelda, we say, you know what, I can understand. I guess I can understand why there's a bit of a hesitation. If that's all she's known was something twisted and abused, I guess I can understand why there's a pause. However, is marriage bad? Are men bad? No. But there needs to be a renewal of Ignalda. There needs to be trust built. There needs to be a, a sense of environment that is built that cultivates or acclimates her to what's healthy instead of what is warped. So how does Ignelda grow? Or in our case, how do we become an empowered church once again? The anatomy of growing up spiritually. We must come into alignment with truth and be renewed in our mind. If you want to grow up, then you must agree with Scripture. Now, we have two sides to this. Remember how I said there's a certain side of this, this power side, that isn't tempering what they're doing against Scripture. For instance, you have people, and if any of you have ever been in these situations, where they get up and they speak in tongues. And so if you're the poor soul, the Agnelda, out there, what you're doing the whole time is you're uncomfortable squirming in your seat, especially if you've never grown up around this, and you're thinking, is that real? That's one of your thoughts. And then you have another thought. It's a flashback to 1 Corinthians 14. You say, well, I guess if it is real, there will be an interpretation. So then they get done with the, the tongue, and there's no interpretation. So what do you do? You're squirming all the more. Now you have no idea. You can't even hear what the pastor's saying. 
You are so lost in the fact that there was not a biblical framework for what just took place. You were uncomfortable with it in the first place, but now you're all the more concerned. Then you have the opposite end. This side oftentimes will ignore the clear word of Scripture on the matter. Then the other side has to ignore the clear word of Scripture on the fact that these things are actually in Scripture. Oh, well, you know, that's because God doesn't do those things anymore. Where does it say that? Well, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that uh, these things are no more. It says when the perfect comes. Yeah, yeah, the, the Bible is the perfect. Where does it say that? Jesus is the perfect. And so wait a minute here. What have we done? We have lost the strength, the power of the gospel because of our discomfort. We have to excuse it away and somehow clamp down on it and say, oh, no, we don't allow any type of uh, power here in the church of Jesus Christ because then you could be like them. Could there be something in the middle known as Jesus? A man who walks in absolute purity in complete agreement with the word of God and doesn't avoid one scripture in it. Is it possible? So we must come into alignment with truth and be renewed in our mind. What does Ignelda need? She needs to begin to come into alignment with truth. You see, men aren't your problem, Ignelda. It was those men. It was sinful men. But men are not always like that. You see, men that are born of God resemble God. Have you ever met him? You see, he is loving and good and kind, and he would give up his life to protect you. You see, there needs to be a renewal of mind. She needs to come into agreement. And when she agrees with truth, the truth will set her free. But we cannot hide from truth. You cannot have power without truth. You cannot have the denial of power without forsaking truth. And so as a result, we need truth. Truth is safe. Then secondly, we must grow God's way and at God's pace. That's a hard one for us. So say you come into alignment with truth, the first thing you're going to begin to see is, whoa, God moves mountains. And so what do you do the next day? Uh, Long's Peak? <laughs> and just like little Hudson may be ready to drive the car once he finds out that, wait a minute, you mean I have the DNA to grow up and drive a car? So he finds my keys in the counter and goes out to the car. He's not yet ready. His eyes are just barely above the dash. And so as a result, he can't see. He doesn't have the wherewithal to understand that when he backs up, there may be something behind him. You see, there is a need for proper growth. You come into alignment with truth. You may realize that marriage is good and that men are wonderful. And there's, a, there's quite a few girls in here saying, could I get married then? Well, not just yet. You see, you need to be readied for it. However, when you come into agreement with truth, you are now prepared in one dimension, but you also must grow God's way and at God's pace. We can't rush these things. And the same with the, tr the true fullness and maturity of Christ being revealed in and through us as the body. Growth is as growth is. I know, that's a funny statement. What is growth? Well, it, it, it's growth. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it, it's just growth. That's why I said growth is as growth is. It is marked by stages, gradients, and degrees. Growth isn't instantaneous. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called growth. It'd just be called boob. <laughs> you see, something that grows, you know that it has stages. You can measure its growth. It has degrees, advancements. 
stages of development, and every aspect of God's creation or his nature shows that. And so if we start with a child, what do we have? We actually break it up into stages. We have, you know, the new baby, we have the uh, infant, we have the toddler, uh, we have the, I don't know what it's called, but there's names for it, and it seems like all the women usually know the names better than the men. But I know we have things like teens and young adults, and then we have adults or the, uh, the college and career, that's how we like separate them out in Christianity. And then we have the seasoned, wise, gray-headed people. <laughs> growth is as growth is. It is marked by stages, gradients, and degrees. The key principle of growth in the kingdom. I know, this is frustrating. Why does Eric have to bring this up? Little by little. Isn't that a funny principle? Why not great gains by great gains? But God seems to have defined in his creation and in his nature and in his word that he says, okay, look, I'm going to entrust you with this. And we're like, that's not very much. He goes, how are you going to handle that which is not very much? It's like, well, could I have more? You first prove with this, and then you'll get more. I just mentioned to you how the kingdom functions. Yet how do most of us function in regards to power, to the grandeur of what the gospel could be? We're like, hey, I'm ready, God. Pick up that mountain and throw it into the sea. Are you willing to have your lust problem picked up and thrown into the sea? Why do we need to deal with that? That's nothing. Come on. I want to see a mountain. You see, we aren't tending to the little And as a result, we are not given the mountain. You want to know why we don't have a mountain being picked up and thrown into the sea in modern Christianity? It's because we have not dealt with the molehills that the Spirit of God has put his finger on. Hey, Eric, you practice here, and then we'll grow up that. And pretty soon you'll be able to stay to a mountain in the name of Jesus Christ. Move, and it will. Same God does both. Little by little. Listen to this scripture in Exodus 23. We have a pattern that is being laid out. We can call this the pattern of the kingdom. It's the pattern of the land of Canaan. So Canaan is that territory that is defined by God. It's called the promised land. And how God teaches the Israelites how to handle the promised land is exactly the way he's teaching us in here how to handle the promised land, our soul. So listen very closely. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. Listen to this line. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. What? You're God. You're God. Is that an accurate statement? You better believe it. Could God drive them out in one year? He could drive them out with the breath of his nostrils in one millisecond. And yet, what does he say? I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. Why not? Lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. You see, God is a good father. And just like in your life, when you look at your children, you say, you're going to be a fine young man. And yet that fine young man isn't yet ready to be the full expression of what you mean as a father. And so as a result, you say as a father, 
And so we're going to take this one step at a time. The first thing I want you to do is make your bed. And the little guy is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you were talking to me about going and changing the nations for Jesus Christ. I was going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what you've been telling me, Dad. That's what you're growing me up for. Yeah, I am. Go make your bed. See, how you handle that bed is defining if you're ready for the next step. And if you fail at the bed, I guarantee you're not going to be changing the nations for Jesus Christ. The small things define the big. So, by little and little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. You see, God's saying, I've given you this land. You will inherit it. It's yours. Like, well, then give it to us, God. We're going to take it little by little. Come on, just get them all out of the way. Can't you just, like, think it? And then, boom, they're all gone. He says, this is my pattern. I'm going to grow you into it. You, have, you know that they had to fight individual battles at each step? Now, did, who fought for them? God, in every single one. But they had to take each step. They had to actually walk every step of that soil. They had to take the land. And the same is true with you taking the land of promise. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of them. But you need to take them one after the next. Little by little. You do not walk past one and say, oh, I don't need that. God says, this is the next one. You see, we did the bed. Now I want you to organize your desk drawers. You know, God, no offense, but that just isn't big enough. You know, I, I'm sure you have, it's sort of like wax on, wax off. Miyagi's teaching the karate kid how to become excellent. God is very similar. He is teaching us the little things that are going to be a part of the bigger operation. And if we forsake those little things, we will stink at the big things. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert under the river, and I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. It's a very clear promise. You take it little by little, and you will grow up, and all this land will be yours. What is God saying? All of Scripture, everything that I've promised will be yours. You're like, well, God, I'm ready. Well, then let's take the first step. All right. So do you want me to go? Do you want me to preach? I, I, give me the microphone, God. I'll say something. I want you to die to self. What? I want you to go silent for a season. You're a talker. Let's just sort of seal those lips for a little bit. Huh? I don't, that's not what I was meaning, God. When, when I said I'm ready, I, I mean I'm ready for big things. No, no one's impressed with that. I am. Who's your audience anyways? Is your audience down here the humans of this earth or is it me? Are you wanting it my way or do you want it your way? See, our way is big first. Let's deal with the small things later. God says, no, we deal with the small things now. What about the big? Oh, there's time for that in the future. You see, God isn't as concerned about the big as you think he is. God knows that the big will never happen unless the small is tended to. Think about it as a parent. If your children are flailing about in the small, do you have any confidence that they're going to succeed in the big responsibilities of life? You know they won't. God is a good father. He knows these things far better than we obviously do. 
Power is available, but it is imparted in accordance with the measure of readiness exhibited. In other words, God is a good father. So the power is there. God's saying this land is yours, but to the degree that you're ready to take the small step forward, you will receive it. If you are not proving faithful with the little, do you think you're gonna get more from God? You won't. Do you know that what I'm enunciating is what he says in all his parables? It's what he says. This isn't some new concocted notion that I'm just coming up with based on how toddlers grow up. This is what God says. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Who said that? Well, that's Jesus. So do you think Jesus abides by his own words? Do you think he's gonna give that which is holy? Can you think of anything more holy than the Holy Spirit? God himself? Do you think he's going to give the power and the grace, the manifest presence of God Almighty to someone who is going to trample upon it and treat it lightly? Oh, oh no. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. God's saying, uh, if you're swine, you're not getting it. You see, God is looking for someone who knows the difference, can, can distinguish between that which is holy and unholy. Do you recognize these things? Where do you learn these things? With the little things. God says if you can't take the dirty thought and learn to recognize that that doesn't belong in this temple, well then do you think I'm going to entrust you with a greater pearl? Because I am giving you my word and you're not receiving it. I'm giving you the simple word of scripture and you're rejecting it. How can I give you more? You take the little and you heed it. You take the little and you bend before it. You respond to it. So what's he concerned about? Lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Luke 19. So listen to this. It's the same principle. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants, this is one of his parables, Jesus' parables, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So he had given out money, talents, minas. There's various stories that showcase this in Scripture. And the king has gone away, and now he's returned. What's he going to measure? He's going to measure how you handled the little you received. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, thou ha have thou authority over ten cities. You see that principle? When you are faithful in very little, what will you receive? You will receive greater authority, greater responsibility. It's God's kingdom principle. What happens to the guy who buries his very little, who overlooks his very little? Uh, he loses his very little. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Where does God prove us? On the little. You know where the hardest area of your life is to be proven? The little things. Why? Because no one's applauding you for the little things. No one notices the little things. And that's where God defines who your audience is. There's nothing worse than some circus act on stage in Christianity who is doing what he's doing for the applause, for the awe, to impress the crowd. If God's going to entrust his power to someone, 
It's going to be someone who says, now go and tell no man what just happened. You see, you are not looking for fame. All you care about is God's glory. And if you cannot prove that in the small, you are not fit to bear the power in the big. 1 Timothy 3, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, or a filthy lucre, a patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, which means reverence and respect. Listen to this line. I made it big for you so you wouldn't miss it. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? If a man doesn't know how to repel a dirty thought, well then how in the world do you think he's going to repel the powers of darkness on a vast stage? If he can't deal with the small, he's not fit to do the big. This is the principle of growth, established authority in the kingdom of heaven. This is what God himself says. The itch for the wow. Let's admit it. Some of us have even said it. I mean, if I saw a dead guy come back to life, it'd be easier to believe. We're just like Thomas. Um, show me the wounds. Let me put my finger in them, then I'll believe. You see, we want something big. And God says, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Another way of saying it is, blessed are those who have believed and yet never seen the wow. They never heard the earthquake at the cross. They didn't see the rocks rent. They didn't see the veil in the temple split in two. They weren't there to see the stone rolled away and the resurrected Christ emerge with those wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side. They weren't there to see him ascend. They weren't at the Mount of Transfiguration. You haven't seen the wow, have you? But will you believe? You see, when you have an itch for the wow, you have a tendency to miss the simple. You know that Jesus didn't come in wow clothing? You know that everything Jesus did was unwow? It lacked the wow. You know that those that were looking for the wow missed him? If you are only focused on the wow, you're going to miss the humble carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus violated something. He didn't do it the way we were expecting. And guess what? In the development of his church, do you think he's going to violate his nature? And he's going to say, it's all about wow now, guys. It's all about wow. Let's get some glamour. Let's get some glitz. Let's get some angel feathers coming down from heaven, maybe a little gold dust. Let's get sort of the smell of frankincense in the air. Oh, that'll woo the crowds. It does woo the crowds. It doesn't woo true Christians, though. It's a bunch of junk. I am so disturbed by the circus act. We are missing our king, our humble savior. He came a certain way, and if he's going to come in and through you, do you think he's going to violate his nature? He's not a circus act. He's the king of kings who is willing to become the lowly, humble servant who's laid in a manger, a feeding trough. He says, guys, this is how I do it. You want me to do it in and through you? There's only one way I do it, through humility. I am going to go the low route. We're like, what? 
Whoa, whoa, God, what about the wow? The true wow of the glory of God comes through someone like Christ, through someone like Paul, who lays down their life humbly, and God creates the wow in and through their life, but you stand back at the cross. It's a criminal's cross. He's a crown of thorns upon his head. He's a bloody pulp of a man. He doesn't look strong. And yet, what does a Roman soldier do? Wow. The wow doesn't come the way we think it comes. It comes the way of the suffering Savior. We so want the big thing that we forsake the small things. God works through the small. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Don't miss Jesus while looking for the wow. What were the Pharisees and the Sadducees looking for? They were looking for a revolutionary that would conquer the Romans. They were looking for something. They had it in their mind what this Messiah would look like. But he came as the lowly suffering servant and it really messed them up. And what did those men do? They are the very ones that crucified him. The scribes and the Pharisees were looking for the wow of the Messiah and ended up being the ringleaders and killing the very Messiah they were waiting for. Introducing the mundane, not a very good sounding word, but an important one. Mundane, what's mundane? What's the unexciting? The uninteresting, the uneventful, the unvarying, the unremarkable, the routine, the ordinary, the everyday. In other words, news crews do not come out and consider the mundane news. Most of what God is going to do in your life, a news crew would never be interested in it. And that's hard for us to swallow. How in the world am I supposed to make a statement in this world for Jesus Christ if the things he's doing in my life aren't bigger? They are big. But the world doesn't recognize them because they're looking for something. They are tantalized by wow. And as a result, they miss the Savior. Because the Savior does things his way. And guess what? His way is the right way. The mundane, the thoroughfare for God's greatest work. Isn't that funny? Where's God going to work? How is he going to do it? You know what we always say? Oh, yeah, I'm praying for that celebrity that they would become a Christian. Because if they became a Christian, could you imagine the impact they could have for Christ? Uh, you've said it too. Is that how God works? Not necessarily. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about that celebrity. He doesn't want him to become a Christian. That's not God's means. God would rather take the humble nobody that no one even thinks to be excited about becoming a Christian and raise that person up in and through their humility, in and through their weakness to rise up and to speak the clear words of truth to live the clear words of truth before a generation. The thoroughfare for God's greatest work is the mundane. Understanding the nature of his working. It's in and through the mundane that God reveals his power. It's a purposeful limitation. Many of us feel the necessity to prove God in the glamorous when God has chosen the humble means through which to reveal his glory. So let's just think about this. His arrival, the king of the universe is coming. I know you've heard this before, but just think about it afresh. What is his manner for dealing out his nature? How is he going to reveal his power? You know that everything in the story of his arrival, typically understood as the Christmas story or his birth, is supernatural? Everything about it is truly wow. I have to admit it's wow, but it's through my lens that I see it that way. Because I 
am able to see the mundane with God injected into it as wow. But his arrival, almighty God, the big, the inexpressible, the vast, the sovereign is coming. He chooses a young girl. He chooses a carpenter of Nazareth as the adoptive father. He chooses to be born a baby. Am I getting this correct? He's cho- he chooses to be born in adversity. Everything about it. Everyone thought he was illegitimate. He grows up in Nazareth, which is the armpit of Israel. He chooses to be laid in a feeding trough. Okay, uh, we've got a dignity issue here. That's God. God knows it. God knows exactly where he led Mary and Joseph. He knew the dynamics, and he knew where he was going to be laid. And he says, that's my way. You see that feeding trough in Bethlehem? Uh-huh. The one where the, yeah, the goat's eating out of it right now? That one. That's where I'm going to be laid. You see, he's food. He knew it ahead of time. He was going to take the lowest place and lay down his life to become food for the nations. Unless you eat of his body and drink of his blood, you can have no part with him. He chooses to be witnessed by lowly shepherds. Who's his witness? Shepherds? You've got to be kidding me. They, everyone in Israel knows that they're the despised. Yeah, that's his witness. That's who he's going to reveal himself to first. The lowly and the humble. Those that don't think highly of themselves. Those are the ones that will see the Savior first. What a strange way to do heaven's work. Well, how about his victory? His whole life, by the way, was marked with this. But so now we have his birth all the way to his triumph on the cross. Almighty God, the big, the inexpressible, the vast, the sovereign. If you're going to crush the head of the serpent, how are you going to do it? You're going to do it with a little wow, aren't you? Hold up the serpent in front of everyone and then crush him openly. Well, he did, but not the way we would have. Chooses to come to this earth as a man, which is quite a phenomenon in the the first place. He could have come as a consuming fire or a roaring tsunami. He could have, but he chose the body of a man. But he chose to come as a servant unto all. He didn't conquer sin and death the way we would have envisioned He didn't crush the head of the serpent in the manner that humanity would choose. He chose the avenue of betrayal. Yeah, this is how I'll do it. I'll be betrayed. I'll be scourged, mocked, and abandoned by all my followers as his means of working. Who does that? He chose the way of the lowly. He chose to identify with the criminal, not to identify with the popular. He chose silence. Shouldn't he be making a big speech? I mean, I don't understand this whole cross thing anyways, God, but at least you can talk right now. Tell everyone what you're doing. Explain it. He chooses silence. He chose meekness. He chose death, even death on a cross. What a strange way to do heaven's work. But is it really a strange way? Uh Uh-oh, brace yourself for the subtitle of this screen. Or is it the way? I'm going to make the proposal that it is the way. It is the only way God works. You looking for a different way? You're not looking for God. This is God's way. And if he's going to do this work in you and the manifest life of Jesus Christ is going to be expressed, he's going to express it his way and only his way. You have an itch for wow? It's very likely that you're going to miss your suffering Savior. You need to have a passion for him and him alone. If your hands end up healing, if your voice ends up trumpeting the greatest sermons on earth in earth's history, praise God, that's not what you're about. Your goal is not to make 
some type of symbol clash, a trumpet noise. Your desire is for this world to see him. And he's a suffering savior. Are you willing to declare the power of God in the most odd way? Because what you just read at the cross is the power of God made manifest. And yet, it's not what you were thinking. You're thinking mountain picked up and thrown, and it lands on all your enemies when it's landing. They're all squashed. Ha, ha, ha. The seven principles of heaven's work. And you can call heaven's work the work of Jesus or the work of grace. It's humble in its method. I think I've gone out of my way to clarify that. His way, his manner of working is always humble. It's often understated in its manner. God doesn't blow a trumpet when he sticks his coins in the money box. He actually says, you see those Pharisees? You see, when they fast, they put on this whole look to get you to know that they're fasting. However, I tell you when you fast, well, who's the one talking? The one talking is the one who's bearing his nature even in the words he's speaking. When he does his work, he does it undercover. He does it in a way that is shocking to us. Go and tell no man what has happened here today. Let's go and tell no man. Proclaim it. I did a great deed. Tell them Eric Ludy did a great thing. Go, Go to the newspaper too. They may want to know and do a photo shoot later this afternoon. Go and tell no media outlets. Go and tell, what? Who does that? Jesus. It is easy to be overlooked. Have you ever noticed that a lot of the provision in your life, a lot of the great movements of grace in your life have gone unappreciated by you? Maybe you haven't noticed because you unappreciated them. However, for instance, have you ever noticed you get that $1,000 check in the mail and it totally shocks you? Like, oh, I finally get to get ahead. You're so excited, you're already thinking about it, what you can do with that thousand and what happens. Something happens, even that very afternoon, that costs $997.50. And you're like, oh, and what did you miss? You missed the fact that God supplied, and instead of thanking him for the supply, you're upset. You see, you missed out on what God is doing. You see, in your mind, you're thinking if God was supplying for you, he'd give you a couple million dollars right now. And yet what he's doing is he's giving you everything you need at every turn. And yet you're not appreciating the little. Do you think he's going to be able to entrust you with more? So it's easy to be overlooked. It's always in agreement with his nature. It's without sin and guile. The way God works in our life, everything he ever does is in perfect agreement with his nature. It's often silent in its moment of greatest triumph. His moment of greatest triumph, where was it? The cross. And what is he? Silent. And when God is doing that big work in your life, oftentimes it doesn't come with a symbol clash. He's saying, do you see it? Do you see it? You see, his work comes humbly. It's washing your feet. It's changing you. It's redirecting your life. Do you see it? It's often dismissed, mocked, and diminished by those looking for a wow a different, more glittering Messiah. You see, here's what I, one thing I can say about Ellerslie. We, we get picked on every now and then for not having more of a demonstration of power, especially for how much we stand up for the full efficacy of the cross. And yet what I would say is, well, we're toddlers, number one, but we are thankful for the small movements of grace here. 
And we have something very, very special in our midst, and I don't want to overlook that while staring at something beyond. I want us, God to take us beyond, but I want us to fully cherish what we have here. And what we have happening in the students is profound. It is beautiful. But I don't want to say, well, until we get more, I'm dissatisfied. However, I want more. I want more, but I want it God's way, God's pace. I want God to grow me up into it. I remember walking around in my dad's wingtip shoes, carrying his briefcase, and I had his suit coat on, and his suit coat you know, hung down to the floor. I didn't quite fit it, but I wanted to fit it. And that's the way we are as a church. We want to get into these huge shoes. Is it right of us? It is. But are we willing to grow up from the age of five to the age of 50? Are we willing to go through the actual rigors of daily decision to gain the stature that it takes to wear such a mantle, to carry such a briefcase, to go about doing such a work, to walk in the shoes truly of the gospel of peace, the super-conquering feet of Jesus under which all things rest? Are we willing to allow God to grow us unto such a maturity? Or are we going to get frustrated that we're not there today and throw the whole thing out? We're not there today. But if we're in Christ, we have access to everything we will need to get there someday. Yet nonetheless, it's obvious to God. So this is the work of God. It may come humbly. It may be overlooked by many, but listen to this. Yet nonetheless, it is obvious to the God-awakened observer that truly this was the work of God. This Roman centurion stands back and says, truly this was the Son of God. What did he see? He saw the humble work of a Savior. Did the priests see it? Did the Pharisees see it? No. But the humble will see it, and they will rejoice. They will see the work of the humble Savior. Are you seeing it in your life? Or are you negating the small things because you're still itching for the bigger? You have power today to overcome that which is crippling you. In Christ, you do. Are you willing to take that? Are you willing to apply it? You're wanting to move a mountain and throw it in the midst of the sea, but are you willing to move out your problem with sin? Are you willing to move past your fear and anxiety debacle? Are you willing to get past your issue with gossip? Because those are mountains. You're wanting to take on Goliath in the Valley of Elah in front of all the onlooking Israelites. But are you willing to tackle the lion and the bear in your backyard? You see, this is our backyard. Our marriages, our families. You see, you're wanting the big stuff. Make sure you deal with the small stuff and then you'll be fit for the big stuff. The return of power, well, it hinges on our readiness to let the mundane aspects of life declare his glory. Could you imagine if we as a church, in one voice said, let's not overlook the mundane. Let's allow God to fully live inside of the small things in our life. Every thought, every action, every attitude, the way we handle our money, the way we handle our sleep, the way we eat our food. And I know, who cares, you could say. Your Father in heaven cares. Because he's saying, you're ready for more. 
You see, there's some of us in here that are aching to see the church of Jesus Christ return to its full strength. But this is how it's done. God is saying, don't overlook the molehills. Let's allow God to permeate the small things in our life, and pretty soon, we can tend to bigger. How do you help someone with their sin? He says, first take the plank out of your eye. What if you don't take the plank out of your eye? Well, then you're not God's messenger to deal with their problem. You see, if you want to see clearly to help someone else, you need to deal with your issue. But your issue is pathetically small. Uh, not to God. To God, it's blockading you from moving mountains and throwing them in the midst of the sea. You see, God has dead people that are ready to be raised. God has loaves and fish that are needing to be multiplied to feed thousands on this earth. But we're not ready for it because we're forsaking the small little things that we have. We're not ready for the big tasks. We want to raise dead men to life, but, we are but are we first willing to take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus? We want to throw mountains into the midst of the sea, but are we first willing to love our brother the way Christ loves our brother? We want to walk on water, but are we first willing to forgive our father for his unkind actions? Think about this. You know that it takes just as much power from heaven to take a thought captive as it does to pick up a mountain and throw it into the midst of the sea? But if you don't wield that power in the small way, why do you think you're fit to wield it in the big way? When it talks about loving our brother the way Christ loves our brother, especially when we talk about a biological brother that really gets under our skin, you know that it takes the power of God to love our brother the way Christ would love him? Are you willing to allow the small things to animate and reveal the nature of God? Because we want to skip those things. We're like, God, why are you getting caught up in that? He's not caught up in it. It's a blockade to your life. He literally, as a father, cannot bequeath to you more until you prove in the small. We want to walk on water, but are we first willing to forgive our father for his unkind actions? God has proven us in the lion and the bear. David, before he reached Goliath, had a lion and a bear in his own backyard. We are often staring ahead wanting to tackle Goliath. We want the big we want the wow. We want the Sunday school story. We want Veggie Tales to take notice and sign a contract with us. But are we willing to do the things that no one sees? No one sees the lion. No one sees the bear. No one sees it when you repel that dirty thought. No one sees it when you quell anxiety and fear in that moment and you walk away from it. No one sees it when you go to the kitchen sink and begin to wash the dishes as a servant act of love for your spouse. No one cares. No one may ever applaud you. No one may send you a thank you note for these things. However, it's those actions that define your readiness for the next level. The necessity of thanksgiving, seeing God in the mundane. So let's cross out the word mundane and we'll call it marvelous because for us as Christians, the mundane isn't mundane. It's the wrong word but it's mundane. It's the stuff the world calls mundane. The world says that doesn't matter. And God says, no, this is where I will reveal myself. You see, the Christian is different than the rest of the world and that God is able to move in and take the mundane things and make them marvelous. Your thought life, the way you look with your eyes, the way you listen with your ears, the way you use your tongue, the way you dress in your clothes, the way you walk down the street, the way you spend your time, the way you handle your money, the way you eat your food. The mundane. And a Christian handles them as the marvelous dimensions of life. 
These are the areas that are empowered by God to reveal the glory of our King. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Whether any mundane thing in your life, do it all for the glory of God. And we say, those are the marvelous things. And people say, well, the church isn't very impressive. You try living this life. One thing you'll see as a Christian is that this is truly marvelous. You know what happens when you allow the mundane to become marvelous and they become the emphases, points of the Spirit of God in your life? You're the happiest person on earth. Because we really do live in the mundane. And if those mundane things are transformed, then that is your habitat. That's your backyard, and your backyard is now 70 degrees and sunny. Your backyard is pure, it's clean, it's right with those around you. There's forgiveness, there's love, there's kindness, there's mercy in your own backyard. And what will God do with a man who's cleaned his backyard? He'll say, you, huh, me? You. I got a giant over in Elah right now that's threatening the Israelites. Would you mind delivering some bread and cheese? I have a job for you. A man that cleans his own backyard is a man ready to clean the backyard of Israel. You see, you are going to be built stronger for the task. The church of Jesus Christ truly will reveal the power of God in this generation. Normative, that which is normal, that which is always, that which is every day. Normative Christianity. It's normative to boat across water and not walk across water. Some of you could argue that and try and sound spiritual. And say, no, no, we as Christians walk across water. Oh, do we? You know that it is normal Christian behavior, and it's not a sin to get into a boat and go across water. Can you walk across water? Sure. But it's not normative. It's normative to feed one person with a few loaves and fishes and not 5,000. It's normative that when people die, they um, just die. It's normative to travel from here to there and not be body transported like Philip from here to there. Philip, literally after talking with the Ethiopian eunuch, disappears and shows up somewhere else. That would be a very effective way to get around the globe. You could save a lot of money on plane travel. It is normal to hike over mountains and not pick them up and throw them into the midst of the sea. The normal Christian. See, the normal Christian is not just the one that is always walking on water. The normal Christian is not just always throwing mountains into the midst of the sea. But the normal Christian is always ready to do it. Why? Because they throw mountains into the midst of the sea daily in their soul. They see the multiplication of God's favor and blessing and truth in their life. Whenever they take it in, it multiplies and feeds not just their life, but everyone around them. They see the power of God at work daily, and as a result, they are the ready ones for that which would be abnormal or unusual. So what is the normal Christian? Well, it's one who, when he needs to cross water, whether in a boat or walking on it, sing songs of praise the entire time. See, what marks the Christian is not if he walks on water. It's not the wow factor of it. It's the fact of how he crosses the water. How does a Christian cross water? Oh, he's singing songs. He's full of joy. He's full of life and full of love. See, the mundane dimension of his life is what counts for a Christian. It's not the big stuff that he does. So whether he's in a boat or walking on the water, he sings songs of praise the entire time, rapturously in love with his Redeemer. That's what makes a Christian. So how about a Christian? A normal Christian is one who, when it comes to eating, 
shows the honorable behavior of heaven in his eating, whether he is simply eating a meal, giving his meal away, or praying over the meal to see it multiplied to feed 5,000. A normal Christian is one utterly convinced that Jesus is the resurrection of the life and that death has no sting for those clothed in Jesus Christ. He shrugs his shoulders at death, for his vision is far beyond this temporal vapor. He is caught up in a life that is eternal, not merely measured by the stretch of time this mortal body can last. A normal Christian is one who goes from here to there with the love of Jesus radiating from his face, the gospel emanating from his life, and the mercies of Jehovah gushing from his soul. Whether he is body transported or he needs to walk every inch of the territory between here and there in the hot baking sun, no matter, for every inch between here and there, will see and know Jesus better if he needs to pass through it. You see, if your body transported, for whatever reason, God wants you somewhere and quick. But guess what? If you have to walk that whole distance, you're going to take full advantage of it because now you have a walking gospel tear going straight through that territory. A Christian knows that. It doesn't matter how we get from here to there, whether it's walking on water or boating. We are Christ in the boat or on the water. We are Christ being transported or walking. Jesus walked through walls and he also went through doors. It doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. We make sure that we emanate the nature of Jesus in the small things of life. The normal Christian is one who is not intimidated by mountains. One convinced that mountains won't stop his forward progression. And whether that be due to the booing grace that God supplies for the mountain climb or the mighty power of grace that picks up the mountain and heaves it into the sea. The normal Christian walks forward knowing he will surely make it. Training for the wow. We train for the wow by allowing our mundane to turn marvelous. When you allow the small things in your life to be big to you, to be big for God, to celebrate them, then you are training for the bigger things. Prove faithful with little and you will be entrusted with more. The redeemed of the Lord, the water-walking, mountain-moving, storm-calming, body-transporting, bread-multiplying, dead-raising treasure of Jehovah. That's us. We have everything we need to be able to walk in a greater power. The return of the winds. This is how we're going to close. I'm going to read you two stories out of the book of Exodus, where Moses is standing before Pharaoh, is the first story, and it's one of the plagues, it's the locust plague. I know it's going to seem strange, but what you see in the plagues and what you see in the subsequent exodus of Israel is you see power demonstrated. And yet I want you to focus on certain aspects of how this power is demonstrated. Else if thou refuse, says Moses to Pharaoh, to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locust into thy coast. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. What brought the locusts? An east wind. Why does God need an east wind to bring locusts? Do you know that God actually used nature around him to bring locusts? to Egypt? They hatched somewhere. A lot of locusts hatched. And then what does God do? He uses wind. Why does he just have locusts appear? That's the way we think. Do you know that God will use the mundane things of life like a locust seed hatching? I don't know exactly how locusts are hatched, but uh, 
I'm, I'm speaking a little out of my uh, territory of knowledge here. And it's a wind that brings them. God's very creation is being leveraged. It's being used for God's power to be demonstrated. So it says, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. It's disgusting, I know. Very grievous were they. Before them were no such locusts as they. Neither after them shall it be such. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind. So now Pharaoh repents. And so it says, and the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locust and cast them into the Red Sea. They actually had to be destroyed. And so what does he do? He takes a different wind and throws them into a very real place that will destroy them, which is a creepy thought when you think of where they were that many locusts were all in the Red Sea. Ugh. Uh, and that's where they're about to pass through. But that's a different thought. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. God uses his very creation, his nature, to do his work, to demonstrate his power. He uses mundane things. And Moses stretched out his hand, so now they're backed up to the Red Sea. What does Moses do? He stretch out, stretches out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land. So if you were going to make a sea dry land and you're God, what would you do? You'd just say... Be dry. The uh, water just sort of part and go up as walls on either side. What did God do? God takes his very nature, what he created, and brings an east wind. Now, I have no idea how an east wind parts a sea and makes it two walls on either side. Can't explain it, especially considering the whole while it's happening, the Israelites are walking through the middle of it. It's a supernatural wind, but guess what? It's still a wind. God doesn't just do it. He uses his nature to do it. So it says, And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a and all that night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. That is power, and yes, I have to admit, it's a little bit of a wow. We have a rod and a mighty wind. Did you know that? You see, God uses that which he has. He's very efficient with that which is entrusted to him. Are you being efficient with that which has been entrusted to you? You see, you have a backyard here. You have a sheep pen. Your sheep, mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your body. Have you handled the small things well? Are you fit for bigger things? And you can say, I, I don't have the equipment to handle this backyard. You have a rod and a mighty wind. You have all you need. You know what the rod in Scripture is? We just went through canon uh, at, at Ellerslie. The rod is Christ. Moses has a rod, and what, is it, what else does he have? He has an east wind and a south wind. The east wind in Scripture is always tearing things down, moving things out of the way, bringing in locusts, and the south wind is a warming wind. And it puts the locusts into the sea. We have both. One that purifies us and one that settles us and makes us strong. You have everything you need. You hold up the rod of scripture. You hold up the rod of Christ in your life. And guess what? Waters will part in your inner being. The Egyptians, all those that have attempted to keep you under the thumb for all these years are no more. And they can no longer hound your soul. You are set free because that rod and that mighty wind have been made available to you. But don't overlook the small uses of them.
God's saying, look, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I've given you a rod and I've given you a strong east and southerly wind. It's the wind of the Spirit. We have Jesus Christ and then he's purchased for us the access of the Holy Spirit. We have the rod and we have the wind. And we want the wow. And he says, take that rod, take that wind, and apply it here. In due time, when you learn to use that rod and that wind here, I'll call on you to use it there. Mountains need to be thrown into the midst of the sea and dead men need to rise again. But let's start with your dead soul. Let's start with what is needed inside of the church and then we will see God progress us to what is needed inside of this dying world. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.